0: This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shopeya dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts.
1: This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in.
0: Hello, I'm Darren Fonda, Managing Editor for Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live Managing Your Money. Today, we're talking to Ashish Shah, Chief Investment Officer of Public Investing at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, which has $2.4 trillion under management. Ashish oversees the firm's mutual funds, separately managed accounts and ETFs. He's also a fixed income portfolio manager covering treasuries, corporates and other types of bonds. Thanks for being here, Ashish.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I thought we could start by talking about the markets and then dive into some areas that look attractive, um, where you might put, say, $100,000 if you had to invest it today. Um, The market seems to be in a pretty tough spot. The S&P 500 is off around 5% from its highs uh, over the summer and just seems to be drifting lower this fall. Some of this may be seasonal weakness. September is usually a pretty bad month for stocks. But there are some lingering pressures. Uh, the biggest one may be bond yields, which have risen quite a bit lately as markets anticipate the Fed keeping rates higher for longer. So, Ashish, what's your overview of where we are today?
1: Yeah, so, so uh, Darren, I, th- I think you've really pegged the situation, the the equity markets are, are definitely struggling as a function of the backup in yields. And ironically, um, that backup in yields is happening because the economy is actually doing um, doing pr- pretty, pretty decently here. Um, I think the narrative as we started the year was very much around a recession. Um, and that recession kind of and recession probability um, increased as we saw the regional banking crisis uh, in Q1. But a- as we've seen the resilience of the economy in the face of tightening credit conditions and rising rates, I think the um, you know, stock market took off. Um, you also had the added kind of benefit uh, to large cap stocks um, of what is going on in technology and AI. And um, that happened with rates backing up at the same time. This most recent move we've seen has been quite um, meaningful and and kind of rapid. And I think it's reflective of both supply dynamics, as well as um, kind of a Fed that is continuing to stay very vigilant when it comes to um making sure that the economy has room to grow without stoking further inflation that's very much their focus and so um, i think it's not surprising to see equity market back up we've been saying for a little while that we felt risk return for u.s risk assets for u.s stocks um, wasn't fantastic given that um, good news was priced in and the risk of uh, rates being higher was not um, now that we've seen rates back up, I think it actually sets up some interesting opportunities for investors to rebalance their portfolios in a way um, to add duration back into their portfolios, um, where a lot of investors have been sitting on the sideline in cash.
0: So, you, you brought up a lot of interesting points. Um, you know, the, the Fed is obviously trying to thread the needle here, um, keeping rates elevated, keeping monetary policy pretty tight. Um, to try to slow down inflation without actually tipping the economy into much of a recession, if one at all. And the markets seem to have thought the Fed was doing a good job of that. I think up until recently, when there's been some concern that um, we may actually be seeing rates stay higher for longer, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon, um, CEO of JP Morgan, uh, said I think yesterday um, that it's not out of the realm of possibility that the 10-year Treasury yield could hit 7%. Do you think that's likely?
1: I think it's very unlikely that we see 7% on the 10-year note. Um, I I think Jamie uh, may have been um, referring to the shorter-term interest rates. But even there, I think that what we're seeing here is a lag period between the Fed hikes and kind of the impact on the economy. And I think uh, another dynamic that we're seeing when when it comes to the consumer's resilience in the face of higher rates is is really the fact that consumers had this excess savings buildup as a function of the pandemic. And, you know, across different subsegments of the consumer um, and different income levels, we're seeing that um, excess savings get um, run down. And so now, um, you know, that consumer strength we think is going to turn into weakness, particularly for the bottom half of Um, income brackets because there you don't have the excess savings we're seeing that behavior translate into uh, individual companies kind of results where you know the lowest end uh, um, of the retail space or the consumer space companies that serve that that um, lower end uh, income bracket um, are really starting to suffer as people pull back as people feel the effects of inflation on their real income and I, I think that you're gonna see that cascade to other parts of the economy as time goes along and things normalize.
0: So do you think the Fed is gonna um, hold pat here or maybe do one more quarter point hike uh, in 2023 uh, and then cut into 2024? And and before you answer, I also, I wanna get into a discussion of, of equities and, and fixed income more broadly. So, um, but what, what do you think of the Fed's next move?
1: Yeah, so look, I I think the Fed would like to sit on hold, right, because they know that there's been a lot of change. They know that rates have backed up quite meaningfully recently, and they, they also understand this consumer dynamic. They're looking at the same data that we are and anticipating that there is going to be a slowdown in the future, um, but they, their credibility matters a lot to them. And so I, I think that they're on hold for now. I think if they see an uptick in in kind of economic behavior and and they see a reversal in the amount of labor supply that's available in the marketplace, um, they will, they will hike again. I, I still think that that is less likely than not, but it's certainly possible. In either case, I think they want the market to price in the risk of an additional hike, because in some ways that almost gets them um, their, their, their pie and, and gets eat, lets them eat it too. Right. In that. They, they get the tightening they want the slowdown they want without actually having to execute on the tightening.
0: right it's the it's the magic of fed speak um and hopefully yep. it'll hopefully it'll work this time around um and i think powell has done a pretty good job of coming out swinging um when he's had opportunities at jackson hole and elsewhere um to indicate that the fed is not going to let up um, on its uh, on its policies, um, just because the market might think so, or because there's maybe a few signs of weakness. Um, and that's the messaging that they've stuck to quite nicely. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the equity market. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, what's fueled it, uh, which is no surprise to anyone I think, which is tech um, and uh, you know excitement around AI. Uh, And what it could do uh, for corporate productivity and maybe broader productivity, I think, in the economy as a whole. And we've seen the market be led by what are called the magnificent seven stocks, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, uh, Meta, and Alphabet. Uh, I know you can't talk about individual stocks, Ashish, but the market does seem to have a breadth problem with these mega cap tech names accounting for almost all the gains this year and the other 493 stocks in the index more or less flat on average. Uh, and that kind of raises the question of what's next. Um, can these seven stocks continue to uh, fuel more gains? Um, and if they do peter out, is there um, enough strength in other sectors to lift up the market broadly?
1: Sure. So so let's start with um, this topic of AI, because I think it's really critical to understand how transformative a technology AI is, and that we are at the very beginnings of an inflection point. Um, I think a lot of people are kind of looking at the AI space, and particularly the run-up that we've seen in these large companies, and kind of questioning, you know, is this overdone? Are we ahead of ahead of the curve and what i would tell you is that we think we're at the early innings of what's going on but those early innings really um favor the enablers of ai technology so you know for the market where you know market and market participants where they're trying to understand you know where do i make my bet it's very easy to kind of pick the largest most dominant providers in the space um, and that ends up being in kind of the chips and networking um, space more broadly. Um, we know that these these players are going to benefit because they also happen to provide a lot of applications in the space. And uh, but but in the near term, it's really an easy place to kind of bet where you don't have to um, wonder where you're going to benefit. Um, you know that you're gonna get kind of positive impact and you're seeing that in the numbers. With this run-up, you've actually seen a run-up in estimates, in earnings estimates, and then those estimates actually be validated in the marketplace um, for these largest companies. But we do think that you're going to go through an evolution as time goes by and as this goes from, hey, this large nebulous thing that is gonna drive productivity to, you know, really implementation and then the um, application benefits, and so you know, one of the things that we've been advising our clients to do is really to consider diversifying their kind of concentrated exposure in these um, in these seven companies. Because, and particularly, they have that exposure exposure through passive um, S and P five hundred uh, kind of exposure that they may have in their portfolios, and make sure that they're diversifying that kind of passive exposure and concentration they have. In other places, and happy to talk about where we see those other places developing. Yeah, let's, but let's, um, let's, I, I do yeah, think that yeah, that concentration uh, is a risk.
0: Yeah, that's a good that's a good segue. I think to talk about um, other areas that you find attractive beyond tech, um, and I would just like to um, remind the audience um, to submit uh, your questions. We already have quite a few, uh, and we'll try to get to some uh, in about ten minutes. But Ashish. Um, Beyond tech, um, what sectors are you favoring now? what are you overweight? what do you think is likely to be pressured? Give us a sense of what you what you're doing
1: yeah so so there are two other kind of major themes that we're seeing play out um, across the globe frankly the the first is around supply chain diversification right and so this is the idea that <clears throat> I think through through the pandemic, as well as through some of the geopolitical risks that we've experienced globally, then companies are realizing that they need to diversify their supply chains. And this is a trend that's been ongoing for the last you know, um, seven plus years, but I think it's really kind of being underlined more recently with geopolitical risks that we've experienced. And so, you know, the first kind of area of diversification isn't necessarily an industry, it's actually a country diversification. We're seeing kind of the desire to diversify uh, supply chains um, that exists within China. And so there, it's countries like Japan and India that are really benefiting from that diversification um, away from China uh, as, as companies look to kind of make sure that they have a broad base of sourcing. And so within those countries, um, in, in particular, in some cases, their tech um, in some cases it's simpler as infrastructure because they' you know in the case of India um, the growth there and the investments of manufacturing that are being made are really going to benefit um, companies uh, that that provide infrastructure um, to the country because the country needs infrastructure to support a broader manufacturing base. In the case of Japan, it's a mix of things actually. You've seen a lot of value companies that are benefiting from kind of rising inflation um, as a function of the policies that are being made and um, the the kind of uh, desire for foreigners to leverage Japan's kind of high tech uh, supply chains um, and their technical expertise in diversifying away from, uh, from some of the manufacturing that we have in Taiwan and China. And so, um, you know, that's one kind of theme that we're seeing is supply chain diversification. A second one that we're seeing in the marketplace um, is really uh, capitalizing on environmental transition. And so, you know, I think one thing that a lot of um, your listeners have probably heard of is the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the IRA, as we call it in the industry, the IRA is going to unleash a tremendous amount of uh, investment when it comes to the U.S. um, in, Infrastructure that really diversifies uh, the energy infrastructure in in the U.S. and and particularly towards sustainable energy infrastructure. And so, you know, that benefits, if you think about the kind of supply chain around that, benefits areas like um, industrials, um, you know, kind of technical manufacturing, as well as infrastructure plays in, in the market. And, you know, I think we all recognize that while we're going to need um, carbon based uh, energy for a long period of time um, that we are without question transitioning and seeing uh, rapid growth of the sustainable infrastructure uh, energy infrastructure in the US and so th- that's a second area, a second um, theme that we're seeing play out across a number of different industries.
0: Those are interesting ideas. Um, just to talk a little bit about Japan and India um, if if one wanted to gain exposure to these themes, would you suggest going in with country ETFs, or is that too much of a blunt instrument? And do you really need to try to hone in on the particular industries that you think are going to benefit?
1: Yeah, I, I think that to the extent um, you want to invest in these countries, I think it's absolutely critical to you can invest in an ETF just make sure it's actively managed because in both of these um, countries are relatively inefficient um, stock markets that really offer quite a bit of alpha uh, to the market and so unlike um, parts of the U.S. market that are very efficient, these are places where you can see managers that are you know, consistently delivering alpha over long periods of time. And it really speaks to the inefficiency of the local markets um, and, and kind of opportunities there. So not, not to toot our own horn as an active manager, but um, I, I would say that you know this is a place where you want to understand, does the average manager outperform uh, a passive benchmark and then go for an active ETF or an active mutual fund.
0: And I guess that's the same, you would suggest the same thing for the energy transition theme. Absolutely,
1: and the other thing I think you'll find is that within these themes, you're going to find a lot of um, ETFs that are thematic, right? So they're playing these themes through different ways. Um, Make sure that those they are. Make sure you understand how much risk you're taking in those in those. Uh, specific thematics. You know, some people just kind of have one direction, which is they want to be risk on and they're really leaning into kind of the riskiest plays within a theme. Others, you know, tend to be more balanced where they have a mix of kind of more traditional players that benefit from the theme um, along with kind of innovative players. So, you know, I, I do think it makes sense to be more balanced because it allows you to kind of benefit over time. You don't have to kind of do all the trading yourself as to when it's attractive uh, or not to be investing in the theme. Um, and, and certainly that, that kind of aligns to our philosophy.
0: All right. Um, well, I'll go to uh, questions in, in a minute, but Ashish, I just want to turn to the fixed income side. Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of uh, commentators, journalists, um, including us at Barron's have been a bit early Um, in recommending bonds. Um, They have not been a great investment this year. um, As yields have continued to kind of go up, the best place really to put your money uh, for much of this year has been in a money market fund where you can get like 5%. um, And most of the bond market hasn't delivered that. Is it time to start taking the duration risk? You you alluded to it earlier. Um, You seem to say yes uh, this, is a, this would be a good time. Is that correct? you want to start moving out a little bit on the yield curve? You're not going to get much income out of it. You're actually going to do better on the short end. Um, but it's, is it kind of just a play or a bet that um, rates are going to be coming down in 2024?
1: Yeah. So, so look, I, I think the, uh, the starting point is remembering why you have bonds in your portfolio. It's for when growth does slow down. And you know, I think what you have seen play out this year is we, when we came into the year, there was expectations of a recession, and so the reason why stocks did well and why bonds haven't done well is because we didn't end up with a recession, right? Um, so, so that's the starting point of you know, kind of a reminder of why you have bonds in your portfolio to begin with. Um, I think right now we've gone through this period where, I, you know, if you'd asked me a month ago. You know i was saying wow i'm looking at equities that are doing really well and and bonds that have kind of been weakening um and with rates higher you should be worried about the equity side of the equation as much as you should be on the bond side of the equation i think now you know you, you, know, you do have bonds at levels where from a real rate perspective as well as from a nominal rate perspective, Um, so real rates being um, the the yield on a treasury less the inflation rate or the the inflation break-even rate, um, they're attractive by historical standards. And so I, I do think it's a time to be moving out, but look, everyone has a different level of risk tolerance. Um, for kind of the bond part of the portfolio. The first answer I would give you is make sure if you're sitting in a bank account that you're getting kind of a fair rate and go to a money market fund. And if you're in a high tax jurisdiction, go to a money market fund that is government instruments only because you're not going to pay state and local taxes on on those instruments' interests. And that's kind of the first easy hack. The second thing is hey let 's say you don 't want to take a ton of um, risk on the prices of the bonds that you want to have, but you want to get some exposure to the fact that rates may not stay as high as they are today if we particularly if we go into a recession. I think a good way to play that is to stay in the curve, go to a short duration. Um, you know, higher quality, short duration bond fund. And that's where you're going to get that front end exposure. You still get some exposure. And by the way, the front end is kind of not particularly volatile. You do get most of the income with a lot less volatility, generally speaking. And um, you're going to benefit if the Fed starts a cutting campaign um, that's aggressive and, and we end up in a slowdown. And and finally, you know, there's, you know, the, the one thing I think most investors have in their core allocation, which a lot of end retail investors have moved far away from their core allocation, is to have like a core bond fund in their portfolio. I don't think that this is an ideal time for a core plus fund, um, because a lot of the plus sectors are very tight from a spread perspective, and they tend to take on more growth risk. And so owning core bonds um, that are generally, cons- uh, you know, hold treasuries, Investment grade bonds and agency mortgages; those are three sectors that I think are, you know, safe from a you know return of principal perspective. Um, they're going to generate good income, and they're going to really perform if the economy um, the economy slows down and the Fed starts cutting. So I, so I think all the, those things make sense.
0: So is the implication not uh, not to take uh, credit risk like in junk bonds now?
1: I, I don't think that. Taking lots of credit risk makes a lot of sense, given how the market is pricing risk
0: today. Yeah. Spreads are spreads are pretty tight. Um, all right, let's get spreads to some questions. Tight. Yeah, let's get to some questions. Um, so, David asks: of the hundred thousand hypothetical hundred thousand, how much would you put into value stocks, and what would you put into growth stocks?
1: Yeah. So, 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 look, I, I think that um, you know, when it comes to value versus growth there's the other dimension of value versus growth, which is size. And right now the market is paying up for size. And I think that you want to be diversified between value and growth where value companies tend to perform poorly into cycles. Growth companies tend to perform poorly when rates go higher because they're naturally longer duration. And so I think, Given the performance of growth companies that we've seen, particularly large cap growth companies, I would be tilting a little bit more towards value in those places um, you know, depending on kind of what your risk appetite is, so um, but I, I would tilt more towards value than whatever your benchmark is.
0: Yeah, well, let's I mean, let's look at value. Like, what's 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 a big component of value? It's banks, it's financials, okay. um, and and those stocks have just been hammered, um, and they're getting hammered now. By higher yields, so I mean, um, some some of the interest rates, some of the some of the dividend yields in bank stocks are pretty attractive. I think Trost is like seven percent now. A lot of the big banks are at like three four percent. But are you kind of just waiting around for a turn in the economic cycle for these um, stocks or for this sector to start working? And are there any other parts of value that you think are more attractive?
1: No, so I I would kind of sit back and say that you are going to see um, you're going to benefit from value in simply having less exposure to the growth side, right? So it's not if you're, you're betting on banks, it's more you're not looking for an economic downturn to win because banks don't tend to do fantastically in the environment. You're looking for a revaluation of the growth side. Right, and and that's why I think on the it's a more marginal trade, and it's a way to protect yourself from from the uh, from a overvaluation on growth relative to the soft that we've seen in rates. I also think that when you look at value, you can't stay just in the U.S. When you look outside the U.S., there are a lot of companies that are. Um, a lot of industries um, like energy that sit in the value category and that have been benefiting, um, they've also been benefiting as, you know, there's nominal growth in places like Japan. So like, you know, uh, whereas growth in the U.S. has been benefiting and performing well, I think value outside the U.S. has actually been having a, a pretty good year.
0: Do you like emerging markets or emerging market bonds? And and one caveat is that the dollar is just kind of on a tear right now, which isn't great for returns uh, for U.S. investors in those markets.
1: Yeah. So what, I think there are two different answers there. I think for um, for dollar bonds, we um, dollar emerging market bonds. Um, we're probably less enamored of that space because uh, it tends to be dominated by higher quality um, issuers, and the spreads are actually very tight relative to the tail risks you end up taking in that space. Having having said that, um, you know, the emerging market local bonds, right, while um, the dollar has, has been very strong, those yields are actually compensating you very well relative to history. So, um, and central banks in um, emerging market countries are actually were aggressive at hiking and are more in the easing camp right now, given they were so aggressive at hiking earlier on. And so I, I actually think that Emerging market local is a very interesting kind of high beta sector, but an interesting place to be Um, when it comes to emerging market um, equities. You know, I I think that the, um, you know, relative to what we've seen kind of globally, the space is attractively priced. But you got to remember, you have China in there where you have legitimately an economic slowdown meeting with kind of valuations that are very cheap. And so I think, you know, do, does EM make sense? I, I think there are parts of EM that do make sense. I think, you know, we like India the most um, when it comes to, to emerging markets, but there's value developing in some of these places where, you know, you know, China's so out of favor in some of the subsectors, you know, like consumer that the valuations you're getting are, are kind of worth looking
0: at. Well, that that leads us to probably our last question from a listener from Renton, who asks: Is it time to invest in Chinese tech stocks like Alibaba and Tencent?
1: <laughs> um, so, without recommending specific names, I, I think it is a deep value play. I think a lot of these players are looking outside of their core um, their core spaces, and they're they're you're getting kind of a tr- interesting risk return from evaluation perspective. I, I do think that the overall um, Chinese economic backdrop is gonna be a challenging one, but inside of there, I think there are gonna be some fantastic opportunities. So again, one where you can be looking uh, to, to pick individual names um, that offer a good risk return, and particularly if they have um, access to markets outside of China and aren't, aren't in kind of the um, that, that are aligning with the policies that are being pursued um and kind of encouraged by the chinese government
0: yeah it's it's a very tricky market um there and you're right the valuations look very very low but they're very low for a reason um you yeah, have to do absolutely. a lot of uh a lot of work to get confident that things are going to turn and that there's going to be some kind of catalyst um, that will start to pull these stocks up. I've got one more question that just came in. Maybe we can uh, talk about it quickly. Um, Ashish, it's from Angelo who says, what do you think of recent comments by Bill Gross that the bond market is headed for a record third year of losses due to inflation and growing national def- deficits and that portfolios should own more pipeline master limited partnerships or MLPs?
1: Yeah, so th- 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 those two things are like apples and oranges. Um, you know, we we are going for a third year of losses, but the the story around bonds is that, you know, when, you know, when they sell off, they offer you more yield. And for a long period of time, I would hear investors and clients talk about the fear of rates going higher, but then at the same time, they complain about not being able to find enough income. And so, uh, you know, the, the, you know, when you're staring down the potential for an economic slowdown, having really safe bonds in your portfolio, again, core bonds in your portfolio are there so that you can rebalance your portfolio into steep sell offs in, in the stock part of your portfolio. And I do believe that while, you know, they're probably interesting. Um, opportunities in in the pipeline space, that those are very much risk assets and they're gonna go down if this broader stock market is going down. And so, you know, make sure that you're diversified, make sure you have enough core bonds in your portfolio. And then, you know, when you're facing uncertainty, in your, on the stock part of your portfolio, go for things that are gonna work over time that you have high confidence in. And on, again, on those long-term trends, the three that we think are really worth investing in that are gonna play, play out over time are first AI, Early early innings. Second, supply chain diversification, um, which opens up opportunities all across the world. And then third, environmental transition. Those three themes are going to play out for years to come. And so if you're wrong in the short term, you can stick with it and know you're going to it's going to work out in the
0: long term. Those are great ideas. Um, Thank you, uh, Ashish. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you join us again tomorrow. Market Watch real estate reporter Arthi Swaminathan and Skylar Olson, chief economist at Zillow, will discuss mortgage rates and home prices. Thank you for listening. Stay well and have a nice day. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash